So I uh, want you to stand up wherever you are, look for someone and greet them. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead and do that. Oh, sorry, Michael. All right, that's enough. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. How, how was that? Okay. Was that okay? That was all right. You got a kiss. I saw that, Mary. Now, I, I, don't, mean to, I don't mean to be critical, but uh, I think we could improve. I, I mean, I saw no long, drawn-out... Um, stares of deep recognition as you stared into your neighbor's eye as if to burrow deep down into their being and touch their heart with the uttermost and profound gratitude. I, I saw no gut-wrenching tears of passion and I saw no unending and enduring embrace. I didn't see that. I, I didn't see, see this. This is, is, these are two people that have never met until this moment. Good job. Good job. Ezra. Yeah. Hi. Are, are you a parent? Have we met? a greeting so get up and do that get up and do that <laughs> no don't okay just kidding because because if you got up and tried to do that if, if you tried to emulate that it would be creepy would be acting because you see those two people in the movie they knew something about each other that other people didn't know and supposedly, it's what we in, in the church know. But now enough prattling on about the greeting. It's time to preach, so let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and we pray now that you would help us to preach your word. We confess to you, Lord, that we're empty without you, or worse yet, we're full of ourselves. We confess our sin, and now, Lord God, we pray that we would receive your grace, your word, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. This is really the fourth part of one message from Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16. And so I'm gonna give you a quick review. Last week, we talked about the second coming of Christ. And we said that it seems pretty clear to the Apostle Paul uh, and in what he says to us that the second coming of Christ will look something like this.
That's anakephalio in Greek, Ephesians 1.10. This is the plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things, anakephalio, under one wounded head. To unite all things in him. And he probably won't look like Simon Cowell from the X Factor, but that's basically it. And it's not just something, now this is important, it's not just something that might happen. It's something that has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul refers to it as the end of the ages in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He says the end of the ages has come upon us. In Hebrews 9.22, it's referred to, the death and resurrection of Jesus, as the centelia, the full completion, uh, the united perfection, the centelia of the ages, Ephesians 1.22, listen closely. God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. It's like all creation will be united in Christ's body or through Christ's body, which is us. The fullness of him who fills all in all, that the body of the last eschatos, Adam. And you remember Adam was given the job of having dominion over creation, right? Incredible when you think about it. But it has happened, according to Paul, at the centelios of the age, at the resurrection, and yet it's being revealed now in space and time through us. Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed to the principalities and powers through the church. Last time, we built the body of the PVC Frankenchrist. Remember? The church. You see, the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is not a 501c3. The church is Christ's body under construction in space and time. It's made of these vessels that have already received a call to unity and have begun to experience unity in space and, and, and time. One body, one life, one blood in many vessels. And yet we're each born into this world of space and time as separate and individual vessels. Uh, kind of like, kinda like, like this, or, or, or like this, an individual uh, vessel. Or um, kind of like, like this, an empty earthen vessel. Remember we talked about that. Uh, to sin is to try to fill yourself with yourself. And so become full of yourself. An earthen vessel full of earth, a clogged vessel, a damned vessel. So in order for the vessel to be grafted into the body, it must somehow be emptied of itself and, and, and filled with God's self. And, and it's filled with God's self according to the, the measure of uh, the measure of Christ's gift. And so uh, someone that is, a, that is a believer, part of, the, part of the body, is someone that confesses their sin and receives God's grace and has therefore entered the process of bodybuilding. Yeah, today we are going to talk about bodybuilding. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16. Hear me now and believe me later. <laughs> Verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Those are just absolutely remarkable, incredible statements that, that I don't think hardly anybody believes. One body. And we said, but Paul, there's like at least six billion bodies in this world. And he says, no, one body. 
One spirit. And we say, well, there's at least like six billion spirits and six billion bodies in this world. And he says, no, one spirit, one hope. We talked about that. One Lord, and Jesus is Lord. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means there really is only one way. One truth and one life, only one, only one way to get from one place to another place, and and that's Jesus. So if anybody anywhere makes any progress, it's through Jesus. All truth that's any truth is somehow Jesus. An experience of life, any life that's real. You know, people say, I never experienced God. I go, well, you ever experienced life? Well, any experience of real life is an experience of Jesus. There's one life, one Lord, one faith. So in reality, there aren't many faiths. There's one faith. Now, there, there may be a lot of false faiths, but all true faith is one faith. So if a tribesman in some remote jungle village somewhere seeks the way, the truth, and the life with faith, who's he seeking? Jesus. And he has faith in Jesus, but not just faith in Jesus. Jesus is already in him as faith. Even if he has not yet heard the story of how the substance of his faith, his Lord became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. One Lord, one faith, one God. There's one God, and God is one. You know, every day an observant Jew, two times in the morning and the evening, recites the the Shema, that's the first word of the prayer in Hebrew. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. What Jesus called the first and greatest commandment. Hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And this is how Jesus uh, recited it. Uh, Our Lord, O God, is here. Our Lord, our God, is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as, as yourself. It's fascinating that the verb here is in the imperative tense. And the verb love is in the indicative tense, as if to say, when you hear that God is one, then you will be one. One with God and one with everyone else. One with your neighbor. You know, we say that there's one God, but we really struggle with the idea that God is one. Right? So we'll say God is this, and oh yeah, and God is that. As if this and that could not be the same thing. We'll say things like this. Well, you know, you have to hold truth in tension. Have you heard that? You have to hold truth in tension. Or, or that, that's, like, that's a dialectical truth. That's a, that's a dialectic. Maybe you've heard that if you've hung around college philosophy classes. The philosopher uh, Immanuel Kant talked about thesis and antithesis, or antithesis. A thesis is an idea, and an antithesis is another idea opposed to the first idea. So people will say things like, we have to hold truth in tension as if there are two different truths. But according to Paul, there aren't two truths, but one truth. And the truth is not divided. However, I may be divided. So I do hold truth in tension because I hold truth in me. And if you know me, I'm tension. I'm, I'm divided. Uh, let, me, let me give you the prime example. We'll say stuff like this. You know, God is love. <laughs> He's love. And someone else will say, yeah, but God is also truth. Oh, God is merciful. Yeah, but, you know, God is also just. That is his thesis and antithesis. And what we mean by that is that love and truth are intention in God. Like God is, you know, he's 62% love and 38% grace. More love than grace. And, and we would call that person that believes that thing, we call them, they probably call themselves a liberal and in their personal relationships. Well, they might be really good at saying nice things to people, but, but they, would, they would avoid constructive confrontation. Or maybe God is you know, only 43% love. 
right? And, and then like, what would that be? Like 57% truth. And a person that would think that way uh, would call themselves, and we'd probably call them a conservative, and um, they might just be rather blunt. Now those are massive generalizations. I just wanna point out that we think truth and love are intention, so God is intention. So we should be intention, but truth is not intention. Love is not intention. God is not intention. We're intention. Because our understanding of the good is intention. I hold truth intention, not because truth is divided, but because I am divided. And it's because I'm divided that I'm divided from God and divided from everyone else. You see, I think I perceive myself as thesis and everyone else as antithesis. Myself as one and everyone else as divided. Myself as God and everyone else as my competitor. Paul writes, one Lord, one faith, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Father of all. This is one of my favorite pictures. It's hanging on the wall in our dining room. It's a picture of my dad's school in 1933 in Sydney, Nebraska. I remember my dad saying to me on several occasions, he'd say, Peter, you know, school was just so different for me than, than it is for you. The teacher never graded on a curve. The point wasn't learning more than your neighbor. The point was learning and learning with your neighbor. So if you got the lesson, you helped whoever didn't get the lesson until you all got the lesson and well, that was the greatest lesson. No one won unless we all won because we were one. You see, it was a, it was a farm community and so um, learning was not a zero sum game. I mean, everybody needed to do th- their part and even more, six of the 12 children in that photograph have the last name Hyatt. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, probably a bunch of the others are like cousins. Uh, They all had one father. The school was my dad's family. There was one father of all, one family, like one body. And you know, a body does not compete with itself. For if it competes with itself, what happens? It dies. It dies. But in a body, one part helps the other parts by speaking truth in love. And so my dad would help my Aunt Peggy by speaking truth and love. That's, my dad is the third from the left in the top row, and Peggy's his little sister, fifth from the left in the bottom row. And so dad would speak truth to Peggy. No, Peggy, two plus two does not equal four. And he'd speak love. But we're not gonna kick you out of the family. You just need to know two plus two equals, no, two plus two does equal four. <laughs> Someone needs to speak truth to me. Well, anyway, he would say to Peggy, two plus two does not equal five, but this is the truth, two plus two equals four, and Peggy, you and your Uncle Peter, our nephew Peter, didn't know I existed yet, need to get that. We all need you to get that, if it's all gonna work properly. But my dad would say, Peter, my sister's failure was never my success. No one succeeded unless all succeeded. It wasn't a zero-sum game. No one won unless we all won because we were one. You see, if you get to heaven and you shout, I won, I won, I won, you need to check your map because you're probably not in heaven. I don't think you are in heaven. and You're probably in a place called hell because when you get to heaven, you'll shout, he won and we won. Our father won and all his children won. Our family won. Our tribe won. Now admittedly, uh, members of one family don't treat members of another family the same. And members of one tribe compete with members of another tribe. But what if we're all part of one tribe? Tribe of Judah, Lion of Judah. 
What if we're all part of one family, one body? And if so, if we all are part of one body, who are you competing against? Or let me put it another way. What are you fighting against? Because a body does fight something, right? My body battles against anything that tries to divide it. Anything that tries to convince it that it's not one, but two, or many, or legion. Ephesians 6, 12, uh, Paul will say this. Look, you battle not against flesh and blood. No person is your enemy. And perhaps every person is your prize. And so you're not to battle them, you're to battle for them against the things that would divide you from them. We battle not against flesh and blood, writes Paul, but against the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. We battle death and captivity and hostility. We battle the prince of darkness and the father of lies who is constantly trying to convince us God is not one. For then I am not one. And we are not one. And each one is not one with anyone, but hostile to everyone. And everyone is a someone utterly alone, captive in hell. Everyone is dead. One God and Father of all, writes Paul, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Literally, he led captivity captive. In Ephesians, we've learned that Jesus captures captivity. And, and he's hostile to hostility. And he is the death of death. He captured captivity and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all, and now last time I said that the we was supplied by the translator, and that's not really accurate. The we is included in, in the verb, but the we does not limit the all like in English parlance when we say we all. In fact, the all can describe the we. So I think literally Paul is saying this. So this would be a literal, a very literal translation until we, the all, and there's an article in front of all, until we, the all, attain to or arrive at the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man, the teleos man, that's important, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And remember that we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that we may no longer be subject to the lies of the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers that say, oh, there's this teaching and that teaching and this group and that group and you need to compete with your neighbor. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all ways, in every way, into him, or we are to grow the all into him, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's an utterly fascinating and mind-boggling chunk of scripture, but this much is very clear. Rather than captivity, hostility, competition, division, and death, speak truth in love. You know, it seems really easy to speak truth without love. And it seems really easy to speak love without truth. 
But if Jesus, our Lord, is the truth, and God the Father is love, then truth and love are one. God is one. Truth is love and and love is truth. So if you speak truth without love, it's actually a lie. And if you speak love without truth, it's more like hate. You know, if you just love people and aren't honest with people, the reality is you despise people and cut yourself off from people. Now, truth is not something that we can define. For, in fact, truth defines us. So if you make your own truth, you uncreate yourself. You desecrate yourself. I read this somewhere. The chief punishment of the liar is not so much that he is no longer believed, but that he can no longer believe. The chief punishment of the liar is not so much that he can, uh, that he's no longer uh, believe, but that he can no longer believe. I mean, if I make my own truth, I make my own world. And so everyone in my world exists only in my own head, and I am utterly alone and insane. If I speak love without truth, there's no such thing as love in all my world. And if I speak truth without love, the truth doesn't matter. I may know a million facts, and this is a good description of our modern world. I may know a million facts and none of them matter. I'm like a a machine that knows about everything uh, but has no clue as to what anything means. A machine interacting with other machines and, and all my supposed truth what kills people and turns them into machines. And I'm talking philosophically. I'm also talking practically because I'll say things like this. I'll say, you're fat. You're skinny. You failed. You're a sinner. Well, it's true, isn't it? We abuse and divide truth and love on a personal level, but also on a socio-political level. And now I'm gonna speak in huge generalities, and I'm praying that you won't be too offended, but you'll get the point. What I'm saying is that it's easy to be on the left. It's easy. And it's easy to be on the right. It's easy to be a liberal, and it's easy to be a conservative. It's easy, in other words, to be a Sadducee. In Jesus' day, they were the liberal elite. And it's easy to be a Pharisee. In Jesus' today day, the, the, the Pharisees were like grassroots conservatives. It's easy to say, God is love. And it's easy to say, God is just. It's easy to speak love and it's easy to speak truth. It's easy to have a thesis and it's easy to have an antithesis, but a a synthesis, That's, that's something else. It's easy to have a thesis, it's easy to have an antithesis, and you'll find talk radio stations for each one. It's easy. You'll find people for each one. People very tolerant of lies in the name of love. And people very tolerant of hate in the name of truth. You'll find churches for each. Churches, for instance, that say, oh, God is, God is, God is love. And then they just blow off the word of truth. And you'll find churches that say, we stand on biblical truth. And then utterly ignore the prime biblical command, here, he's one, love, love, love. I'm saying it's easy to have a thesis, it's easy to have an antithesis, but, but, but a synthesis is another matter. It's easy to acknowledge a dialectic but dialectical reasoning is something else. 
If I remember my philosophy courses correctly, it was guys like George William Friedrich Hegel, working off of guys like Immanuel Kant, that argued that the advance of all knowledge, the advance of all history, is the advance of dialectical reasoning. It's holding thesis and antithesis in tension until you see a synthesis. A synthesis, the synthesis is, is a truth that reconciles seemingly divergent truths. And according to the Apostle Paul, you see, there is an ultimate synthesis of, of all things. There is a, a syntelios of all things, a consummating end, a unifying perfection of all things. There is an anakephalio, and God has chosen you, his church, to see it and to participate in it and to proclaim it now and always. I'm saying that God is not part love and part truth. God is not kind of anything. He's not sort of anything. He's not part love and he's not part truth. God is all love. And he speaks nothing but truth. He speaks one word, one logos, one logic, one reason, and this is it. That's truth, in love, spoken to you. Can you think of a truth that cuts more deeply than that truth? That's the measure, that's the standard. He's the judgment, he's the good that reveals that I have sinned and even become sin. I've crucified the good and that, my friends, is not good. Jesus reveals that on your own, you're dead. He is the truth. And in that sense, he is farther to the right than anyone you will ever meet. Can you think of a a truth that cuts more deeply? And can you think of a love that heals more fully? He's the measure, he's the standard, he's the judgment, he's the good, he's the word of truth revealing that God is love. You took his life because he gave his life from the foundation of the world, and that's the good. He became sin on your behalf, bears all your pain, suffers all your sorrow, for God in Christ Jesus has chosen from the foundation of the world to make you his very own body. He is love. And in that sense, you will never meet anyone further to the left than he. Every one of us, you see, needs to move further to the right. And every one of us needs to move further to the left until we arrive at the exact center. Jesus Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. That's truth in love. One word that that God speaks, the word that creates 
all things, judges all things, reconciles all things. That's the synthesis. That's the syntelios of the ages. That's the fullness of time, the meaning of all space and time. That's God's word, God's logos, God's logic, literally God's reason, the ultimate dialectical reason. And that's why I titled this sermon, Bodybuilding Through Dialectical Reasoning. Yeah? You see that you are to believe the word, speak the word, then be used by the word in reconciling all things to God. You are the body, and I am here to pump you up to equip you for the work of ministry in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that you would speak the truth in love. And now looking at that picture, do you understand why we hesitate to speak the truth in love? I mean, apart from Christ, I don't think we have the strength to speak the, the truth in love, but, but, but connected to Christ, we, we begin to bleed his blood. We begin to bleed truth in love. We begin to speak truth in love, and it hurts. But it heals. We don't judge because we aren't the truth. But if we speak truth, the truth will judge. It will cut. I mean, if you're honest, the, the truth may hurt. It may hurt the person to whom you speak. And it will hurt you if you speak it in love. Truth often hurts. But love always bears the hurt. Truth in love is one word, it's the word that God speaks and the word that we are to speak. We're to speak truth and love to each other within the church and so build the body and we're to speak truth and love to those outside the church and so build the body. We'll have to talk about this more but this is how we discover our gifts and this is how we learn to use our gifts and connect one to the other and grow as a body. Remember my daughter's vision I shared last week about how she saw the people coming forward for a communion and these cutters. Uh, you know, the word judgment means to cut. These cutters, they come out of the wall and they start chopping people up, chopping arms and legs off and everything. Uh, but the people kept coming anyway. They hobbled forward around communion where they bounced one into each other. And you know, communion is truth and love. And when some of them bounced into each other, one that didn't have an arm would fuse with maybe one that did and they grew into this one in incredible body. You see, it happens, it happens like this, uh, like, these, like these two vessels. Uh, maybe this vessel says, well, I'm a prophet, and God says, blah, 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 blah. And this vessel says, oh, yeah? Well, I know the Bible. I went to Bible school, and, and God says, blah, 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 blah. And this one says, well, you kind of hurt my feelings. And this one says, well, you kind of hurt my feelings, but let's love each other anyway. Let's work it out. And so they try to figure it out together. They try to work together, bumping into each other like thesis and antithesis until all of a sudden, synthesis. <laughs> so that's what God was saying. That's who you are. You're one of those. And that's who, that's who I am. And the blood begins to flow. The blood begins to flow. Speaking truth in love, the blood begins to flow. Uh, speaking truth in love, we empty each other and fill each other. You see, it's, it's bumping into each other you know, because we all got some of this, speaking the truth in love, that I begin to realize the ways in which I'm full of myself. I'm full of my ego, I'm full of my pride. And I begin to realize that I'm full of myself so I can be emptied of myself saying I confess and be filled with God's self as my neighbor says, well in Jesus' name, you're forgiven. And the blood begins to flow. Truth is like, I think, nerves of Christ, connecting every cell within his body to the mind. And, and maybe love is like the blood of Christ, supplying the life of Christ to, to every member. And so the body is exercised and builds itself up with the very life 
of Christ, bleeding one member into the next, and the process, and it's a process what can hurt. Paul Brand wrote this, a body is unified by pain. Think about that. When one member of my body is in pain, all the other members of my body, they feel that pain and they all move to care for the one that's in pain. A body is unified by pain, but a body that's been unified is joy. It's life. And it's a testimony. You see, the church exists in the world to testify to the manifold wisdom of God in manifold vessels so that the principalities and powers would look at the church and tremble in fear and so that the lost people of this world would look to the church, look to the truth, the love, the life uh, and think to themselves, that's life. I would like to be a part of that body. And the church would say, you are a part of this body. Come home. You were lost, and now you're found. Come home. Karl Barth writes this. The Christian community is the provisional representation of the universal scope of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The official statement of the Roman Catholic Church from Vatican II puts it this way. The church has a single intention, that God's kingdom may come and that the salvation of the whole human race may come to pass. For every benefit which the people of God during its earthly pilgrimage can offer to the human family stems from the fact that the church is the universal sacrament of salvation, simultaneously manifesting and exercising the mystery of God's love. For God's word, by whom all things were made, was himself made flesh, so that as perfect man, he might save all men and sum up all things in himself. The Lord is the goal of human history, the focal point of the longing of history and of civilization, the center of the human race, the joy of every heart, and the answer to all its yearnings. He it is whom the Father raised from the dead, lifted on high and stationed at his right hand, making him judge of the living and the dead. Enlivened and united in his spirit, we journey toward the consummation of human history, one which fully accords with the counsel of God's love, to reestablish anakephalio all things in Christ, both those in heaven and those on earth, Ephesians 1.10. Pope Paul VI on December 7th, 1965. The next time you hear someone say, Peter Hyatt's a heretic, I want you to say this. No, Peter and the Pope are homies. Okay, let's practice that on three. One, two, three. No, Peter and the Pope are homies. All right, cleared that one up. But I love this line. The church is the universal sacrament of salvation. That makes sense. We are Christ's body, and we bleed his blood. So if it be God's will, our body is to be broken, our blood is to be shed for the lost. Just as Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us who were lost. You see, when all the parts of the body are working properly and the body has been built up in love, it is a testimony to life experienced as joy. But at the edges of that unity, how is life experienced? How is life experienced right there? Well, it's body broken and blood shed. That is a testimony to life experienced as sacrifice. A broken body bleeding for the lost the lost member. It's the blood of the lamb, writes Paul in the Revelation. It's the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony that defeats the evil one. And calls to the lost saying, come home, come home. We're bleeding for you. But you see, we won't bleed for another, either within what we call the church or without what we call the church. We won't bleed for another if we don't believe that the other belongs to our body which is Christ's body. 
And now we're back to the start of the sermon, the greeting and the the movie clip. Why the long drawn out moment of deep recognition as she stared into Ezra's eyes? And why his moment of recognition as he glanced back at the scar upon her chest? Why the tears? Why the passionate hug? It was because they both knew something and they knew someone that maybe the others didn't know and his name was Ben Thomas, played by Will Smith. Ben Thomas had planned his own suicide due to shame. But before he killed himself, he decided to find people in need to whom he would donate his organs. But in that process, which is really the, the, the movie, in that process, he fell in love with one of those people in need to whom he wanted to donate one of his organs, and her name was Emily. And uh, Ben fell in love with Emily and then longed to live with Emily, but without his heart, Emily would die. And so instead of taking his own life as a suicide, Ben gave his own life as a sacrifice, leaving instructions with a lawyer friend as to what was to be done with his body broken. Seven pounds for seven people. Ezra had been blind but received Ben's eyes, his corneas, and Emily received her lover's heart, Ben Thomas's heart. So when Emily looked at Ezra, she saw her lover's eyes. And with those lover's eyes, that lover's eyes, Ezra looked at the scar on Emily's chest and he knew he was looking at Ben's life in Emily's body. The fellow that uh, wrote that is named Grant Neoporti. 18 years ago, Grant was a kid in my youth group in California, a kid that I never thought listened to anything that I had to say. (laughs) And I don't know if he remembers this, but I used to tell a true story about a boy who loved a girl that spurned him, a girl with a life-threatening heart defect. He said to his parents one day that he'd die for her, and three weeks later he had an aneurysm. He didn't control it, I guess, but he just had an aneurysm. Supposedly, it's a true story. He died, and his family decided to donate all of his organs. They donated his kidneys, they donated his eyes to other people, and they gave his heart to the girl that he loved. At youth group, I would say, that boy... Well, that boy is like Jesus, and we are the girl he loved. Now, I don't know if Grant remembered that story, but I do know that Grant and his wife, Jill, who was also in the youth group, I I don't know if they remembered that story that I told, but I know that they remembered Jesus. And do you understand? You're Ezra. And even more, you're Emily. You are Christ's body. And and with his eyes, you can see his life in the people in this room. And one day, you will see him as he is, fully as he is, for you are the girl that he has loved, his bride. And so... It was on the sixth day, the edge of the seventh day, the Sintelios day, that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. Think about that. We said God is not divided. And yet he allowed his body to be divided for us. And he does not stay divided. He rises from the dead. 
So anyway, he took his body and he broke it and he gave it to us, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured for the forgiveness of sins, drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So we invite you to come forward, there'll be two stations, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, dark cups are wine, light cups are juice, and eat it. And then take a second look at the people around you. Have we met? You okay? to shout it because when we look at Yahweh, we realize I am not. <laughs> but Yahweh has another name, and that's Yahshua. You pronounce it Jesus, and it means God saves. And that's the name we shout. And we shout our Father's name because Jesus said, call him your Father. And so you know what this, you know what this world needs? Do you know what your marriage needs? Do you, do you know what your family needs? Do you know what the divided Congress of the United States needs? Do you know what this world needs? It needs a person with vision. A vision of this. And thus, a vision of, of, of this. And uh, also then a vision for each one of these. A, a person that would ingest truth in love and then speak truth in love, Jesus. And not just the Hebrew name, not just the English name, but God saves truth in love. In his name, believe the gospel, speak the gospel. Not only that, live the gospel. You're his body. Amen.